From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's labor market is tight. That means more flexibility for some workers and new benefits. When we survey some of our businesses, they're coming up with some non-traditional means of compensating their employees in the midst of inflation, in the midst of very high gas prices. We hear from two Colorado economists who have their ears to the ground in one of the strangest economic chapters of our lives. Then, faced with the high cost of land and construction, mountain towns look at new ways to build affordable housing. And you'd think smoking bans and TSA restrictions would have killed the matchbook business, but one Colorado company defies the odds. No one is using it anymore to light cigarettes. 99% of my business is the non-smoking venues. Hi, I'm Dan Brooks, and I donated my car to CPR. The car I donated was a 1996 Ford Explorer that my son had been driving. When he went off to college, he didn't need the car, and it was old enough and duct taped together enough that the rest of us in the family didn't feel safe driving it, and it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Didn't matter if the side door didn't open or the bumper was falling off. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Donate your car. It's easy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The unusual things going on in the economy right now hit Coloradans in some well-known ways and some that are less well-known. We all see that inflation means costlier food and gas. But what else does the wacky economy mean for us? Bethany Green and Nick Sly are economists from the Federal Reserve based in Denver, and welcome to both. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, we want to clear up one thing. You are not at the Fed, the folks setting interest rates (laughs) at this point. Is that right? Correct. So we are part of the regional affairs team um, here at the Denver branch of the Kansas City Fed. Of the Kansas City Fed, right? That's the the big brutalist building on the 16th Street Mall. (laughs) Yes. That's your home. Okay. Or that's your office. And uh, the nature of your role there is, is not to set Uh, interest rates, but to watch trends, I guess. Well, I think an important part of our role is to make sure that for those that are setting interest rates and those policymakers, that they hear directly from Coloradans. And so for us to have the the office down here in Denver is the chance to hear from community leaders, from business leaders, and make sure that their voice is part of that conversation. Okay, that's good. That means your finger's on the pulse. With that, we always have to point out that our uh, perspectives are our own and don't necessarily represent those of the Fed in any way. So we recently learned that U.S. GDP, gross domestic product, it's like the measure of value from the making of stuff and the doing of services. Uh, GDP fell for a second straight quarter. Bethany, are you seeing signs of that in Colorado and like maybe who's most affected? So I'll point to two main things. The manufacturing industry, we're actually beginning to see um, a slowdown in growth. But the caveat there is that this is a slowdown in growth from very high historical levels of manufacturing activity. Um, But there's still a slowdown there. Then I'd also point to the housing market. So we're actually beginning to see a bit of a slowdown with regards to construction activity, so specifically for single-family homes. So we're beginning to see a bit of softening in those two areas. Okay, and let's break that apart. So manufacturing, can you give me examples of what sorts of manufacturers you've been talking to? 
Absolutely. So some of the conversation that we're having is is some of the high tech manufacturing that happens in Colorado, a manufacturing sector that looks different than other parts of the country. Oh. Some of the renewable energy manufacturing that's taking place uh, here in Colorado. And the housing, the, the notion that single family home construction is slowing. It's funny, I hear all the time, it seems, Bethany, that we don't have enough housing stock. So is that a troubling sign when you hear that about housing starts? So the interesting thing about it is that we're beginning to see across the country that housing inventory is actually increasing. And that's because mortgage rates have increased, because interest rates have increased. And we're starting to see a little bit of a slowdown in the housing market, a little bit of a slowdown in demand. So we're seeing that inventory begin to creep up. So Mm -hmm. therefore, that construction activity is likely to slow down as a result of that. Oh, I see. Okay, those are interplaying. Now, we, we've used this term slowdown, but I wonder as well if this is a normalizing after a very strange couple of years where the federal government handed out a bunch of cash and interest rates were super low. Uh, Nick, what would you say to that? I think that's right. There's a handoff that has to happen where rather than some of those economic stimulus payments that were really helpful for folks getting through the pandemic, some of the PPP program that was really instrumental to helping people keep their jobs, that was the public sector really stimulating the economy. Mm -hmm. And now that handoff is taking place to businesses and it's their hiring activity that's driving uh, overall economic growth. It's consumers that when they go to the grocery stores, they're traveling or taking their vacations this summer. Those are the types of drivers that we're looking for contributing to growth in Colorado. And so it is something of a handoff from public sector to now businesses and households. And I I suppose the big question is, can the private sector run with the baton, uh, as it were? I think that's the question that we want to ask. You would expect some normalization. So a slowing of overall growth, mm-hmm. that's where I think you'd, uh, where you would look to, to see some normalization of activity, as you put it. Um, Bethany, I know, had done some good work on thinking about households, how able they are to sort of pick up that baton. Yeah, we actually did some research recently, and we're looking at um, financial conditions of households in our region, so Colorado is included in that. And what we actually have seen is that um, delinquency rates are down. It looks as though households are able to fulfill their financial obligations. Delinquency meaning late payments on any any sorts of bills? or Correct. Okay. Um, on their debts. Um, whatever debts that they have. Uh And that was data up until the first quarter of 2022. With some more recent data, a larger share of households are actually experiencing some more difficulty paying for their usual household expenses relative to the previous year. So we're already beginning to see um, a bit of a deterioration in the financial stability of households Mm -hmm. with that new data coming out. Do do you think that's related to inflation just because everything that they're paying for is more expensive? Correct. Correct. I guess fundamentally, I'm curious if that handoff you talk about, right, from that federal infusion of money to, you know, the hiring and the the making of stuff and the doing of services, as I said earlier, uh, by business, is it possible that that handoff, that normalizing, looks like the start of a recession, but actually isn't one? Like, could it be a false signal? I think that's the reason you have to go out and talk to businesses and you have to talk to households about the experience they're having. They look very similar. And it's really them telling us about their experiences that changes our thinking and the Federal Reserve's thinking about, okay, how much of this is a trend that we expect to continue, a slowing that might expect to continue, Mm -hmm. and how much of it is a normalization. We really do count on Colorado's to to give that perspective. You know, for households, you know, we are seeing them 
because of those higher prices, not buy some of the bigger ticket items that they used to. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're taking the pulse of Colorado's economy in the context of the national economy with two economists from the Federal Reserve based here in Denver, Nick Sly and Bethany Green. When you talk with businesses, when you survey individuals, are you finding any creative solutions, I don't know, to deal with gas prices, for instance? Yes. So actually, when we survey some of our businesses, they're coming up with some non-traditional means of compensating their employees in the midst of inflation, the midst of very high gas prices. When their employees have to commute to work, they're facing that inflationary pressure. So we're actually seeing businesses give out things like gas cards or like direct payments associated with driving to their um, employees in order to reduce that burden. Beyond like what the normal... mileage reimbursement would be. And that, that might even be driving that wasn't originally reimbursable. Exactly. Uh-huh. And also I'd bring up the fact that remote work is becoming even more prevalent today. And with very tight labor markets, I think businesses are really trying to keep the employees that they have. And by providing them with gas cards and these direct payments, they're able to do so. But what you're saying there about remote work is fascinating because, of course, that was a originally driven by the virus. Now, that might be driven by, hey, if you drive less, commute less to work and stay remote, you're saving some money. And maybe we're retaining you as an employee because you can work uh, happily from home. Do you think that's true? I think so. I think that remote work, it's moved away from that temporary sort of idea. I think remote work is likely to be a lasting thing in the job market. I mean, as we speak about work, Nick, what are you seeing in terms of unemployment? It's fairly low, actually, in Colorado, for instance. It's quite low in Colorado. It's quite low, even though we've had an increase in the size of our labor force over the couple of years. So it's not just low on a percentage basis. There's more people back to work here in Colorado. Ah, In pure numbers. In pure numbers. Uh And I think what's important, too, is it's relatively low across racial groups. It's relatively low across skill groups. And so you're seeing some broader participation in that labor force. You're also seeing more and more people, if they want to be able to find a job, that there are jobs available. On the flip side, businesses uh-huh. are telling us that, yeah, that we're actually having a hard time bringing people in because the, the, the labor markets are so tight. One thing I might also point to that's, that's particularly true in Colorado is that we've got fewer people holding multiple jobs where they would have to hold one part-time job and another part-time job and commute in between. And that was a hardship for a number of folks in the state. But fewer of them are having to take or or searching for uh, two part-time jobs to make ends meet. And more and more of the workforce now actually has one full-time job, potentially with some benefits, only one commute to it. And I think there's strength in the labor market there that isn't just reflected in the unemployment number. It's the type and quality of jobs that are available out there. Right. But, of course, the tension there is that with prices being higher, um, the benefits of that get reduced to some extent. That's right. The dollars, the wages have gone up. Absolutely. They've gone up. But to your point, wages have not kept up. That growth has not kept up with price growth, which means some of those dollars aren't going as far as they used to. And that highlights, I think, why the Federal Reserve has been so committed to restoring price stability. Bethany, does anything stand out to you when you contrast Colorado with the rest of the country? 
I think one thing that stands out to me is the housing market. Uh-huh. So we've seen very high um, housing price growth across the country. But in Colorado in particular, we're actually seeing um, even higher housing price growth. So if it feels worse here, there's a reason. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So like you pointed out before, inventory on the supply side is an issue with that. But on the demand side, what we're seeing is some in-migration from coastal cities. So think of L.A., San Francisco, areas where the cost of living is even higher than it is here in Colorado. So moving here is quite a bit of a relief. Mm -hmm. So um, we're seeing also with the in-migration an increase in demand for housing, and that puts upward pressure on prices. I might even tie this back to one of the conversations we were having earlier about remote work, where Bethany had, had found that link between more remote work and housing prices. The way that people want to use their houses creates a little bit of excess demand for it. Oh, Yeah, so we actually did some research a couple of months ago looking at the link between the amount of time people are spending at home and housing price growth. And we actually found that in counties in Colorado where people are spending more time at home, that actually meant that those counties saw faster housing price growth. Why do you think that is? So a couple of reasons. So like on the supply side, we're actually seeing that if people are spending more time at home, maybe they're less likely to put their homes on the market. market. Uh Yeah. And then on the demand side, with more people spending more time at home, maybe they're looking for more space. The pandemic definitely shifted people's behavior. So that also increased demand in those counties. If you're working from home, having a roommate now is a little bit more difficult, right? And so you might be Mm. kind of building out a little bit more space. And if you're spending more time at home, you might crave more space. You might crave, you know, new creature comforts, things like that that weren't so important when you were living your life in an office or a studio. And being that Colorado's got a lot of industry that supports some of that remote work, you can see that as being an important factor for our housing prices that Mm -hmm. doesn't always uh, play out in other parts of the country. Okay, before we go, uh, will each of you bring out your crystal balls and uh, give me... (laughs) Give me, um, I don't know, like one prediction for the region economically uh, for the next six or 12 months, like what you'll be watching. Yeah. So something that is on the top of everyone's minds is inflation. I can point to the fact that we're seeing changes in consumer behavior in terms of what they're spending their money on, what items they're buying. And as we continue to see that change and that decline in aggregate demand, it's likely that that will begin to show up in um, the data in the the next couple of months. Okay. And you'll be watching for that. Yeah, absolutely. How that behavior translates when lots of people engage in it. Yes. Okay, Nick. One thing I'm really paying attention to is the ability of firms to continue to hire. Even though we're starting to see a slowing of activity in production, they're still posting jobs. They're still recruiting at all skill levels. They need managers and they need supervisors and they need production workers. Is that befuddling to you? No, I think it highlights how strong of an economy and how strong of growth that we're actually coming off of. As Bethany pointed out, yes, we're starting to see a slowing, but we're seeing a slowing of activity from historic high levels. There are orders to be filled. And businesses are still looking at if it's a construction company, they have houses and developments that they need to fill out. If it's a manufacturing company, they've got some products that they need to get produced to fill orders over the next couple of years. And so they're still trying to meet that demand. What I'm looking for is to see is if if we have any signs that in Colorado, the number of of job postings might start to slow down. Mm -hmm. So far it hasn't. 
that the number of people applying is starting to slow down. So far, it hasn't. And so those are the, the turning points that I'm trying to pay attention to because it says, how are workers voting with their feet about going to the labor force and what do they need from the labor market to provide for themselves? That's something I want to pay attention to. And then as Bethany pointed out, inflation is about how well uh, those jobs provide for their livelihood is how able they are to cope with those price increases. Yeah, I wonder if that hiring has something to do with supply chain because there was demand for stuff, but there wasn't always the ability to meet it. So you, maybe you have a bit of a pent-up pipeline. Absolutely. Businesses are telling us that. Okay. Even in Colorado this summer, the, the number of folks that are going on vacation and coming out to our resort areas is pent-up demand for travel that we just mm-hmm. haven't been able to do for a while. And Colorado has been able to benefit from some of that. How much thought do you give to economics as a self-fulfilling prophecy? So I I have to say that as a journalist, whenever I see stories or do stories about recession, for instance, or about inflation, I think, how much am I contributing to the reality of it by constantly talking about it? Um, Do do you give thought to the kind of like psychology of self-fulfilling prophecy in economics? Absolutely. We do it for businesses. We do it for households. We think about it for uh, how we're going to go to the grocery store. Some of this is, do you stock up on things like uh, uh, chips and, and pastas and on things that you, you think aren't perishable? They can sit in your pantry for a while because they might have prices that go up later. And so you do see that psychology potentially change in their behavior. Mm. You also see businesses potentially doing the same thing. And you start asking, hey, are you hoarding materials? Are you holding on to a larger inventory of things thinking the prices might be up? And those can distort overall economic behavior. One of the things that I tend to ask them to is uh, is ask them about the contracts they're signing. You know, how long are you negotiating your wage increases for? How long are you negotiating your price increases for your customers? That tells us a lot about what their psychology is. And it's not a, a tenuous link. To, it's a real economic behavior. Mm-hmm. They're writing contracts that price in what their expectations are. And those can be really important signals for us about what they think the economy is going to do over the next six to nine months. I guess, Bethany, I'll put this in an extreme way. If I and every other journalist stopped saying the word recession or inflation, would it make a difference? Like, would would inflation go down? That's a good question. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Economics is all about Uh decision-making. It's all about um, behavior. And I think that with regards to people's expectations, consumer expectations and business expectations, that absolutely feeds into the real economy and what is going to happen with inflation. So I concur with Nick. And I I tell you, one of the ways that I think about this is whether you and I call it a recession Uh or some agency calls it a recession or not, What we're really trying to understand is what's the experience that households are having? And so you're right. We use the word a lot. We ask the question a lot. But I think it's an entree into the real conversation of what's the experience people are having as they go about trying to provide for their needs. Mm -hmm. And whether we start it with the word recession or we start it with the word stability, I think that's a conversation we want to have both in the backyard uh, and also at the policymaking table. And on the manufacturing floor, I suppose, with high tech in Colorado. Fascinating. Thanks to you both. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having us. Ryan, thanks for having us here. Nick Sly and Bethany Green are economists with the Federal Reserve based in Denver. When we come back, the challenges of finding land and building on it to create affordable housing in the high country. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? 
These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a challenge to build affordable housing in mountain towns. What little land there is is expensive. Then come the building costs. Steamboat Springs will ask voters if they can try a new solution, as CPR's Sarah Mulholland reports. Jason Peasley is walking through the knee-high grass at Brown Ranch, an abandoned ranch just outside Steamboat City limits. He's the head of the Yampa Valley Housing Authority. So we're looking over what will ultimately be our first phase of development. An anonymous donor gave the land to the Housing Authority last year. Peasley's organization has big plans for the roughly 500-acre site. The goal is to build more than 2,000 housing units over the next two decades. The old ranch is a huge expanse of rolling hills and meadows with unobstructed views out to the mountains. On the other side of that uh, horizon line there is still more property of which we'll be developing out. Officials say the development could really help alleviate the chronic lack of affordable homes in Steamboat, the same thing that's plaguing all of Colorado's mountain towns these days. The blueprint includes both single-family homes and apartments and all the other amenities a community needs, like stores, medical offices, a place for events, a place for just hanging out, maybe even a school someday. It's an enormous undertaking. You know, I don't know how many miles of road we're going to be building. It's, you know, 20 or so many miles of road and hundreds of acres of parks and open space and thousands of units. So it's a, um, I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal opportunity, and I don't think there's any other community in Colorado that has had this type of an opportunity to build, you know, a neighborhood specifically for its local workforce. The town rejected a developer's initial plan to build out the site not that long ago. But a lot has changed since then. Fast forward 15 years, we need this more than ever. Even though the real estate was free, building on it won't be. Peasley says the price tag will likely come to about $400 million. That's a lot of money for a city with a population of about 13,000. So how are they going to pay for it? About half of the money could come from a new tax on short-term rentals, like Airbnbs. In November, Steamboat voters will decide whether to levy an additional 9% tax on stays at short-term rentals, with the proceeds dedicated to funding an increase in affordable housing. The money wouldn't necessarily all go towards Brown Ranch, but the idea is most of it would. Some short-term rental operators spoke out against the tax during a recent city council meeting, saying it would turn off tourists and end up hurting Steamboat's bottom line in the long run. But the measure is widely expected to pass. Kim Weber is Steamboat's finance director. I think that's the general consensus that this tax will pass because it doesn't directly affect most of the people who will be voting on it, um, meaning that they won't be actually paying the tax. So different from a sales tax on merchandise where they would be paying it. She expects the tax to generate about $11 million per year. Several other Colorado mountain towns passed similar taxes on short-term rentals last November, including Uray, Crested Butte, and Telluride. Most of that revenue is earmarked for affordable housing initiatives. 
The move makes a lot of sense right now. Resort communities in Colorado got a surprise boost to their coffers during the pandemic as people flocked to the great outdoors and paid top dollar to do it. But mountain towns are starting to see the pace of bookings slow down as travelers pull back in response to inflation and a looming economic downturn. That could eat into funding for some of these initiatives, especially one as ambitious as Brown Ranch. Weber from Steamboat says the town has a plan to manage that possibility, including not counting their lodging tax chickens before they hatch. We would have to build that into our projections, those ups and downs, and then be careful to only use it for, like, one-time expenditures. Construction could start at Brown Ranch as soon as next year. If everything comes together, residents would start moving in during 2026. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a matchmaker, but probably not the kind you're thinking of. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. From the bottom, now we're here. That's part of the joy of Started listening to music bottom, and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A plaque at the site of an anti-Chinese riot in 1880 will be removed from downtown Denver this afternoon. This comes four months after the city issued a formal apology, including for the marker, which whitewashes the history. A Chinese man was lynched during the riot, and Chinatown in what's now Lodo was destroyed. A group called Colorado Asian Pacific United will be on hand for the plaque's removal today. Shauna Medeiros Twilaepa and Joy Ha co-chair the board, and we spoke last year. So the plaque's about eight sentences, and it's titled Hop Alley Chinese Riot of 1880. Shauna, what about that framing concerns you? First of all, Hop Alley is a derogatory term that refers to the opium dens that were in the area at the time, and it insinuates that the Chinese community of the time were just, quote unquote, hopped up on opium as if they were the only ones that were using a lot of the other um, individuals in the area of white um, individuals as well would seek refuge in these opium dens as well. And so we feel that is a derogatory term to refer to it as Hop Alley. Also, the plaque says Chinese race riot, which doesn't differentiate that it was actually an anti-Chinese race riot. Um, it kind of leads the reader to believe that this was started by the Chinese community, whereas it's quite the opposite. And I know that uh, you both think the plaque focuses on the incidents of 1880 through a kind of white savior lens. Uh, Maybe, Joy, you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So a white savior um, story focuses a lot on the people that were Caucasian. So it's not to say that there weren't any folks that stood up against this horrific event. It is to say, however, that the focus is largely on these folks. There is no mention of what the Chinatown was like at the time, what had 
happened in terms of the perspective of a Chinese person. And it really just has the story seem um, whitewashed, as you mentioned earlier, that it shows this perspective of a benevolent um, one or two white people that had attempted to help, as opposed to saying there was a bustling Chinatown these Chinese people had these types of occupations and lives and which were disturbed and ruined by the anti-Chinese race riot. You mentioned that this was fueled by anti-Chinese sentiment, and we reached out to CU Boulder historian William Wei. He's the author of Asians in Colorado, and he expounded for us on that hatred at the time. For a while, there had been developing in Denver and across the state an anti-Chinese sentiment. This sentiment was referred to nationally as the Chinese question, which revolved around the issue of whether more Chinese should be allowed to immigrate to the country, where, by the way, they had contributed significantly to the development of the infrastructure of the nation. And many of the rioters, like those around the state and the country, felt threatened by the Chinese. They felt threatened by Chinese economically as well as socially. And so that perception of the other as a threat is key to this story. I wonder for you, Shauna, if that sentiment still resonates today. Absolutely. I think we're seeing it a lot, um, given the hateful rhetoric that has been built over the last four or five years. We're seeing um, a lot of folks are calling it an uptick in anti-Asian violence and, and hate crimes. But in all honesty, this is a history that has been around since the beginning and seen throughout other communities of color. Joy, do you want to share a few words on the idea of the relevance of this history today? It basically goes to show that things haven't changed as much as we have would have liked since that race riot in 1880. Although we'd like to say that we've made progress, we're becoming a more equal society, and in some ways, yes. But the fact of the matter is, there are a lot of things that have been happening since we arrived here. And additionally, it goes to show how fear really serves as a vehicle for hate. Mm. So previously, um, in 1880 and prior, there was the fear that Chinese individuals were threatening the fabric of what it meant to be American, despite the fact that um, a lot of them had came over and lived here their entire lives and, you know, were American in several senses. You know, it's quite informal what I'm about to share, but I was asking friends prior to this segment if they'd heard of the 1880 anti-Chinese riot in Denver, and I'd say that the bulk of them had not. I'm curious if either of you learned about this event in school yourselves. Shauna? Most definitely not. This is definitely another example of of racism by erasure, and it is a, an important history to know. And that's why we feel that the Denver community and Colorado needs to know that this history happened so that we can properly honor and celebrate the Chinese community of today. Joy, did you learn about this in school? Absolutely not. And even now, when we look at Lodo, there is no sign that a Chinatown existed. There's no way that you would know other than reading that very small plaque, Mm. um, which in itself is um, problematic, like we mentioned earlier. 
Joey Ha and Shana Madera's Twila Epa are with Colorado Asian Pacific United. We spoke last summer. This afternoon, the city of Denver will remove a plaque about the anti-Chinese riot of 1880. The marker will be given to History Colorado for preservation. All right, we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every summer, Coloradans anticipate roasting and buttering ears of Olathe sweet corn, grown exclusively in Montrose County. But it's more than a vegetable. It's the crop that saved Olathe. Once upon a time, Olathe's economy ran on sugar beets and barley. When demand for these dropped in the 1970s, the town's finances suffered. Then along came a new sweet corn variety with higher than normal sugar content and unusually tender yellow and white kernels. In just a decade, the farmer who first planted it raked in millions of dollars. And soon, other fields were planted in sweet corn. The delicate ears must be harvested by hand, tens of millions every summer, quickly packed in ice slush to lock in the sweetness, and then sent to grocery stores and farm stands. It's the sweet treat on the cob that restored Olathe's economy, and the focus of a festival every summer to celebrate Olathe's sweet corn. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Growing up, there was a pail in our home filled with matchbooks, and I delighted in seeing the names of bars and restaurants my parents had visited. They eventually gave me the collection. So now when I go out and matches are offered, I plop them in the pail and they mix with the places my parents went. Well, recently I learned that Colorado is home to a longtime matchbook importer and designer. Wagner Match is based in Evergreen, in the owner's home. We asked Rockford Wagner to bring a few of his favorite matchbooks in and to tell us whether this is a bygone business. Rockford, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. I guess, uh, first off, do businesses want matches for their customers these days? I mean, at a time when no one can smoke inside in public? More than ever. We live in a digital age where there is nothing. The cell phone's gotten rid of clocks and business cards, and there's just a lack of tangible goods. Ah. And matches are something to accentuate an experience. It's a way to share ideas and transfer art in a world where it's hard to transfer in a physical medium. Oh, you you see these as little bits of art. Oh, absolutely. And that's how my father started it when he started the company, as a way for people to express themselves and really cement a relationship between the business and the customer. You think of them as little handshakes, I think. A memory that fits in your pocket. (laughs) That's what he always said. Well, I'm going to guess... That I am not alone, then, in my love of matchbooks. Better than an Andy's Mint. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And anyone who's ever helped their grandparents is going to find a bag or a stack of matches. Well, so help us understand, you're more in demand now than, what, at any other time in Wagner Match history? In or the what? time of Wagner Match. The real other high time would be the 90s. But ever since 9-11, that made matches a hazmat product in airplanes, there was a downshift. But over the last 10 years, a match has transferred. No one is using it anymore to light cigarettes. 99% of my business is to non-smoking venues. 9-11. Yes. So was that the hardest time for Wagner match? Absolutely. Because not only with 9-11, the smoking bans happened. And so both these things happened all at once with a downturn of the economy. 
In the early 2000s, it was definitely the toughest part Wagner match ever saw. The real heyday of matches was in the 50s, back when cigarette companies could take marketing expenses. So when you got a pack of cigarettes, you would get a little booklet of matches. Same thing with the army. When you got your rations, you got a cigarette pack with your matches. And all that went away. So 50s was the real high turn of the matches. But before COVID, we were definitely at the peak. COVID happened, it was rough, and we're doing very well again. Okay, I have a million more questions. But you have brought, indeed, some of your favorite matchbooks. Yes. So why don't we go with the first? Well, the first and the oldest one here. Okay. Is going to be my dad's favorite match. Oh, and your dad's no longer with us. No, my dad passed away in 2017 because of complications of Agent Orange exposure. He had been in Vietnam. Yes, he was. Okay. And his favorite was? Thank you, Colorado. It has two beautiful landscape pictures of Colorado. Uh And on the bottom, it just says, Colorado says thank you. He was an Ohio farm boy. He always thought of himself as an artist. But being colorblind sure didn't help. So this was his way of really getting into the art community. And he loved Colorado. May I say, okay if I touch it? Yes. Oh, this is a photograph of Colorado on the front and back. And this is the kind of matchbook you flip up. It's not the little box. No, that's a matchbook compared to a matchbox. 20 light book, which is the most standard. Colorado says thanks. So this would have worked at basically any venue in Colorado. He could have sold that to any sort of restaurant or bar. Yes, this was actually for a a photographer. His name's on the top. Ron Runhoff? Okay. Runhoff? But he just wanted to give this away with his art as a promotional piece, never intended for cigarettes. So it's not just restaurants and bars that want matchbooks. Yes, correct. It's anything from... Artists, the real estate agents, um, design oh. houses. You never know who's going to call. And that's part of the fun of the industry. Oh. And so you like this in part because it's your father's favorite. And then it also strikes me as unusual to see a full photograph like that blanketing a matchbook. Yes, I would say um, photographs on the matchbook aren't typical. Yeah. Um, Logos are probably more common. Exactly. Logos are different types of artwork. But part of the, my favorite thing about selling matches is every day I get to be with my father. I lost him at a young age. And so every single day in the office, it's almost like he's with, with me at my side. And I'm just going through everything he's taught me, all the tools that I inherited. So th- that's my favorite thing about selling matches. Goodness. You talked about importing yes. the matches themselves. Mm-hmm. So there is no domestic matchmaking? There's no domestic match manufacturing in the United States, correct. Okay, where do they come from, matches? Most matches in the United States are coming out of India or China. We choose an Indian match because of quality, and then they are put on ocean freighters because when they're in the air, as I've said before, they're hazmat. So we put them on ocean freighters through the Seuss Canal and import them on the East Coast. Before COVID, we were making all of our matches in Japan, but with the West Coast shipping pile up and then just the strict lockdowns in Japan, we no longer are importing the Japanese match. Interesting. Yeah. And what happened to American matchmaking? Regulations. It's just too costly to dip the sticks in sulfur. And so anyone that's even making matches in the United States is simply putting them in a box, putting them in the book but not manufacturing the matches. 
Okay, how about a second matchbook? Second matchbook. Yeah. You have this little Ziploc baggie you brought. (laughs) I brought one that's one of our family's favorite. Okay. It's from a restaurant in Seattle called Canless. Canless is a third-generation restaurant, and each of their matchbooks or boxes tells a story of the family. This one tells the story of Grandpa Canless in Africa with Teddy Roosevelt. So as you can see on the front, it has a safari scene with zebras and antelopes in purple, gold, and a cream. And then on the front cover, you can see Teddy Roosevelt with smoke coming out of the tent, where Grandpa Canlis is preparing his, his hunt, whatever he just recently got on his safari. Does it surprise you how much can be packed onto such a small surface? It depends. It, with the right artist and the right idea, a match should be able to tell a story. It should be as effective as a conversation. Huh. And the story doesn't end with this. If you open up the box okay. and you look at the inside, yeah. oh, you, you can you see... You dumped out the matches now so you can see yes, the sort of well. There's a lion hiding back there through the grass and the inside's like a zebra kind of showing just anything you could have on the safari. Now, did you design this? This one, uh, we did not design. Canlis had their own personal artists because uh-huh. they have a series of matches. We simply helped fit it on the match and import it. Some of our customers want us to design the match. Other customers come with their ideas fully developed. Now, the box itself yes. or the book, is that also coming from abroad? Everything. We, okay. This is all made at the match plant. So when a customer comes with their order, we do the art design, give them a proof for approval, and then we make the match in the factory tailored to their needs. So this particular, as we would call a domino box two, <laughs> was all made in the Indian factory and imported. You mentioned that COVID was, I mean, it was obviously tough on the sorts of venues that might hand out matches. Yes. And we brutal. were kind of we were kind of avoiding touching each other too, you know. Right. Talk to me about the period around COVID. COVID was very difficult for the hospitality industry. Um, personally, I feel lucky to be in Colorado. A lot of my clients on the East Coast, it was just devastating, both personal and financially. We went through a full quarter with almost no business. And I consider Wagner Match extremely lucky. We lost numerous customers across the nation. I would be talking to customers constantly, especially in places like Brooklyn and Boston, who were just in absolute tears running these businesses they've had in their family for multiple generations. Safe to say it completely changed the landscape of the hospitality industry. Um, from the way you walk in to the way you greet people. Mm-hmm. And it was really a time of metamorphosis for matches because it was kind of like the last breath of the way the world used to be. But after COVID, I think matches have really kind of taken a new place in the industry. It's a way to shake someone's hand without touching. It's a way to share ideas Um, separated from being in the same room with the person, especially with Mm. takeout orders. They became really big because you don't have ambiance anymore. You don't have setting. But you can give a match to try and share the idea which you want your customer to have in your restaurant. Oh, so you slip it in with the takeout. Exactly. Oh. But I know within the Denver area, it affected us very personally. Our favorite restaurant, Vesta's, closed forever. That was the dipping restaurant. Exactly. All the sauces. It's where we spend all our holidays or Racine's. 
So COVID was a very difficult time for the entire industry. And I'm just happy that we're still in business afterwards. Rockford, be honest here. Yep. There are those like flimsy cardboard matches. Mm -hmm. And then there's the solid and frankly, to me, more satisfying wooden ones. Are both in equal demand? They are. Because the real power of a match is the art design. A match with no art design really doesn't have too much value. It's once you put the love and affection in it that gives the value to it. It's true. There's nothing sadder in a way than a blank matchbook. Yes. (laughs) Which I've seen sometimes at gas stations. Okay, so there's no real preference you're finding among customers between, like, the cardboard matches and the... It comes down to your overall business model. Sometimes the book with the cardboard sticks just work better because the match is not really there as a tool. It's more there as a memory or an accentuation of the event. Uh So just having a place to display your art is enough. But if you have something where like a candle company or something where the the fire or the flame is a very big part of the product, then you want to go to a box match. If I'm your client, can I choose the color of, what is that called? The stripe? The head. The head. Absolutely. We have 17 different colors, custom uh, head colors. Anything you want, we will tailor the match to your needs. Okay. I know it's sounding a little bit like an ad, but I, I have to say I'm just so fascinated by matches and matchbooks. Well, you say that regulation kind of drove the industry out. Are you able to follow the kind of like the safety practices and the environment that you know, people in India are working in as they make your match. Have you ever visited those places? I personally haven't. I've been running the company since 2017, Uh especially during COVID. Travel wasn't allowed. But before COVID, my father went to all the factories, checked them out. All of our factories are up to international standards. Our wood is sustainable aspen. Uh, No plastic is used unless requested from the client. Mm. It's all paper or Yes, we use Panatone inks that are able to be recycled and have a small footprint. Okay, how about one more? One more. One more? I will do a new one we just did. Look at this. This is for the Aspen Design House. We just printed it this year. And it is what we call a four-inch lipstick match. So it looks a bit like a lipstick case. It's long and narrow. Exactly. And this one is black and white with a jackalope across the cover. And then if you open it up, the tray will be a forest green with black sticks and a white head. And very long match sticks. Four inch, just off the press. Like something you might light a fireplace with. Not quite that long. We would consider it a candle match. A candle match. Yes, sir. Getting a little taste of the vocabulary of your profession, Rockford. What makes a good and a bad match box or book design? What tends to fail, I guess I'm curious about. I think the key to having a good design is something that is simple. You don't want anything that's too busy. If you have the proper artist, you can have something that is extremely busy with a large story. But if we take a look at this one for Chipotle, very simple. A natural craft background with a saying that says four to five cavemen agree, fire hot. (laughs) There's just something that you remember. You don't have to have a high class artist. Uh As long as you're sharing a piece of yourself, then the match will be successful. Well, thank you for sharing a piece of yourself. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. 
Rockford Wagner owns and operates Wagner Match out of his home in Evergreen. There are photos of his favorite matchbooks at CPR.org. 25 years ago this month, TV viewers were introduced to a small Colorado mountain town. I'm going down south, I'm gonna have myself time. Friendly faces everywhere, humble folks without temptation. Going down south, I'm gonna leave my world behind. The offbeat, off-color animated sitcom South Park debuted August 13, 1997, and Comedy Central is throwing a birthday bash to celebrate. The South Park 25th anniversary concert takes place at Red Rocks tomorrow and Wednesday. South Park is the creation of Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who grew up in Conifer and Littleton, respectively. Their fictional town is thought to be based on fair play in Park County, although the creators haven't said so themselves. Oh, the snow's pure and white on the earth, rich and brown. Just another Sunday morning in my quiet mountain town. The show has been on the big screen as well, and in its 25-year run, there have been way too many Colorado references to count. Colfax, Cave of the Winds. In the most recent season, Cartman and his mother move into the Coney Island Boardwalk hot dog stand in Bailey. And of course, there's the 2003 episode immortalizing Casa Bonita. You guys, you guys, I have awesome news. This Saturday for my birthday, my mom says she's taking me to Casa Bonita in Denver, and I get to invite three friends. Wow, Casa Bonita! Woohoo! What's Casa Bonita? Dude, haven't you ever been there? It's a big Mexican restaurant, but they have, like, cliff jumpers and Black Bart's Cave and all kinds of stuff. It's like the Disneyland of Mexican restaurants. No offense there, Lakewood. By the way, Trey Parker and Matt Stone purchased the iconic Eatertainment Palace last year. Fans anxiously await its reopening. As for this week's Red Rocks shows, they'll feature Parker and Stone, as well as performances by the rock bands Primus and Ween. Primus frontman Les Claypool created the South Park theme song, and Ween was featured in season two's Chef Aid, playing a benefit concert for the character Chef. Now here's Ween! We're thrilled to be a part of Chef Aid. Chef was the guy who told us to do a country album. No, dude, that was Steve's idea. Oh, then who's Chef? I don't know, dude. I thought you knew him. Oh, well. Anyways, here's our song! The South Park 25th anniversary concert is tomorrow and Wednesday at Red Rocks. Some bad news that both shows are sold out, but the event will stream on Paramount+. Plus. is Colorado Matters for today, where there are friendly faces everywhere, humble folks without temptation. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. 
Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner on Twitter. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.